Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll. This is Black Cats Run. On this episode, the first part of a new series, Deus Ex Machina, where we try to uncover why is it that we have come to believe that only a small group of people are capable of succeeding at a high level. We are going to try to demonstrate that a god in the machine is used to explain away the lack of performance among the majority of participants in sport by unraveling the success culture of athletics. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can check us out on Instagram at Black Cats Run. We're also available for consultation. Send us a message on Instagram. We'd be happy to hear from you. Let's get into today's episode. Success. Why are we so fascinated by success? Why do we worship people who seem to have achieved it? Why do we believe that most of us can't? Is it true that the minority of people succeed and the majority of us fail? Is the distribution of wealth in society, the distribution not only of worth, but also a genuine recognizer of capacity to achieve. On the podcast, we've talked before about the kinds of mirages and optical illusions that are cast in front of us by high-intensity training. High-intensity training's value is an illusion of opportunity cost, and there's a complex apparatus used to rationalize it. The ghost in the machine is that we suppress the ability of individuals to achieve because of the systems that we dictate as necessary to reach the point of achievement. Quote, When everything seems to be going against you, remember that the airplane takes off against the wind, not with it. Unquote. Henry Ford. Here are two other quotes from Henry Ford. You can't build a reputation on what you're going to do. Whether you believe you can do a thing or not, you are right. Henry Ford is one of these people who has this weird, iconic status in the development of the concept of success in American and Uh, Western culture in general, even, I would say. What we're seeing when we look at these kinds of quotes that have been preserved and passed on, you know, supposedly are attributable to Henry Ford. I suppose we will never know for certain if these things are things he actually said or if these are things that have just sort of um, 
fit into the category of tales that have grown taller in the retelling. But what we're seeing through these is the moment during industrialism when people are looking up high into the clouds of society. And that space up there among the clouds is the heavens reserved only for gods. And when we see success happen here on our more mortal plane, it is the act of a god, not one of us. Uh, We see them as different. Deus ex machina, the god in the machine. There is no other explanation that we try to make sense of or utilize. And this willingness to accept this extremely sort of cheap way of resolving the plot of success and failure and its distribution among the population of whole societies has permeated to such a degree as to make it a fact. And it's almost like we needed to recalibrate the scales to make space for people with inconceivable lifestyles when compared to the lives that the rest of us lead. How easily we make space for that kind of thinking. It's just incredible to watch as you sort of step back and you know what to look for, what you're looking at, and watch that play out. Like, you know, the idea Elon Musk is Iron Man to some people. Uh, Why do we give way to that kind of willing absurdity I mean, to a certain extent, we remove our own dignity in a way by putting people like that on pedestals that they do not deserve to have. And, you know, there's implications and impacts of that kind of thinking that go in many different directions. Um, But when we're thinking about this, in this particular context, we're thinking about where does our ethos around success come from? How have we constructed an understanding of what that milieu might be, and then how does that expectation uh, influence the decisions we make about how we inhabit that constructed space. Because Henry Ford also said, quote, any color so long as it's black, unquote. You know, so much for any kind of evidence of, you know, real dynamic understanding there, right? Um, sounds pretty one-dimensional, to me, right? You know, that success is a capacity to dictate and limit, in a sense, what others can do, right? And so that success, you know, then becomes dominance and becomes preference. And a lot of effort is put into taking successful people um, and making that success or that achievement seem like it has greater meaning or significance beyond what it actually can, in fact, carry, And I think one of the problems is that we make, uh, when we make assertions, we are also suggesting to some degree that other possibilities must be wrong. So can we do that, but encourage, uh, in a sense, the further efforts to overturn that kind of a truth? For example, there's a, I think, natural inclination to look at any color so long as it's black as some sort of like wisdom or stroke of genius or something like that. 
But I think it's really just a capacity of the supplier to exert leverage over the market um, in a kind of like monopolistic competition environment, which, you know, is sort of an oxymoron because monopolistic competition is essentially the lack of competition. So um, our view of society and that kind of minority rule is so acceptable that we expect it um, to look like that in our kind of moral metaphor. And the sporting scene is a, in many ways, a morality play. And that the rules that we use in that space sort of seem to be designed to funnel um, forward that concept of only a small group of people can achieve. And that's really kind of interesting to think about because what that in a sense means is or could mean, right? We can't say this definitively, right? This is as much speculation and hypothesis as anything else, to be fair. But what that could mean is that when we look at, you know, for example, the very small number of um, world tour level cyclists that come out of the United States, you know, a country with a huge population and and clearly a very significant sport and athletic culture, at least in a broad sense, um, well, the idea is that, well, though that's it, like that's the capacity, the carrying capacity of this whole society to produce uh, succeeders in that kind of domain area. And when we have that sort of belief, right, that it's like there's this, you know, extremely unique minority of people that encourages us to sort of say that, well, you know, that's the distribution of ability. And we create rules, both the official rules of competition, but then we also create rules in terms of the kinds of social norms and the things that we allow people to do, and then the things that we collectively shame or discourage people from doing. And we're manipulating and shaping these rules in such a way, both the explicit and the implicit rules, um, to create that outcome, right? And so in that, you know, theatrical metaphor sense of deus es machina, we are basically sort of bypassing the need to actually interrogate this or understand what's really going on. And I think what happens is we create our own optical illusions. And, you know, when we think about sport, you know, it's always something that plays back on society uh, because it's an extension of our so, uh, social and cultural values because it's an extension of us. And, you know, sport is society and society is sport. They aren't really that um, distinct. It's critical to recognize here that there's a whole history to the development of this kind of, you know, superior people as minority um, and inferior people as gross majority. Uh, if you look at the development of this through the um, 19th century onward, and you look at things like craniology, eugenics, scientific racism, Republican motherhood, um, hemetic theory, um, you know, state organized systems of discrimination. Um, you know, there's this irony that science, which is an empowering thing when done correctly, uh, also has been misappropriated in order to create and uh, ferment mentalities of inequity. And 
the another layer of irony, and there are layers upon layers upon layers when you really start to explore this space. Another layer of irony is science as sort of this like method of progress in the sense that when we apply that method of understanding, right, of like, well, can we use evidence um, and reason um, in combination? And that if we do that, we start to expand and increase our ability to recognize what we can improve um, and and how we can improve. And then progress seems to what we call progress results from that. But then we have this incredible social cultural phenomena where people are starting to use and continue to use this stuff as a way to sort of prove or disprove um, different sorts of ideas. So it could be, and, and in that sense, right, proof or disproof, it sort of leads to, you know, asserting that this order of things is the natural appropriate order and that, you know, scientific discovery actually shows that it's inevitable. Um, and then using that same sort of um, voodoo science, pseudoscience concepts to try to shut down um, things that might challenge or question that or say that, well, things aren't so absolute. Because I think for a lot of people, um, science has become this idea of like, well, we're identifying the absolutes of the world around us when really the scientific method is recognizing that our understandings cause us to view things in terms of absolutes, but we're at a very, very small capacity of understanding relative to the total things that are knowable or the total mechanisms that drive the functionality of the factors around us. And we see this permeate into sport, too, where science is sometimes used as the ugly stick to keep things the way that they are. And I think that there's a certain romanticism that we cling to desperately because of its like entertainment uh, power or just the way in which it makes us excited to think like, man, what if I was that special person? Um, the idea, right, that there are unique godlike people. Um, and I say that with hyperbole, of course, but that there are these godlike people who are doing this this stuff, right? And that they have, you know, deigned to come down from the stratosphere in the heavens to share with us their, you know, divine capacities and to demonstrate, you know, essentially, you know, how inadequate we are, we who are not capable of being the succeeders. And this is a kind of close-mindedness. And I think it's a willful close-mindedness. And we're using that this God in the machine level explanation of just saying, well, that's how it is. And it's this whole um, misappropriation of the concept of science to be like, well, these are the, there are these absolute answers where we don't even need to understand. It's just that, you know, studies show that blank. And, you know, very little consideration or discussion of, well, what's the study design, you know, it, we don't see that, right? We say, well, here's this thing. It's true. Um, we should accept it. You know, the world is not a fair place. And, you know, that's certainly true because fairness is an imposed and constructed value in itself. But the world is only as fair or unfair as we choose to make it um, through our collective kind of directionless pursuit of things where we aren't like trying to challenge or engage with these things. We're just sort of mumbling along and with the idea that, well, if we're a success person, like then we'll just sort of start succeeding, I guess. And that if we're not a success person, well, I guess it's not the end of the world because probability wise, what's the chance that we would be a success person? 
Um, and that whole space and domain of success as being fundamental and being distributed in this like intensely concentrated uh, minority of capacity and majority of inability, um, this is a space that we want to uh, acknowledge that fabric, um, but to consider uh, also to what extent um, we are the spiders fly trapped in this web of our own making. And if we look at this in terms of performance, athletic performance, right, if we narrow this down and apply this kind of broader sense of, well, what is the structure of um, minority achievers, majority failures, we see that there's a split in perspective um, where we divide the field into performers and the non-performers. Or, you know, my um, aunt, who's an Olympic Nordic skier, one of the phrases that um, she's used is the idea of like a citizen's race, right? And that, you know, you know, the sort of road races or running races or whatever, things that you can just go online and register for, you know, are a citizen's race. And I guess to a certain extent, right, that actually makes sense. I had just never really heard that phrase until I heard her use it, right? But the idea, well, I guess these are kind of like public events versus um, these events that are like these, you just, you can't like get into them. You know, it's like you have to have that VIP, you know, accreditation to to get invited. And, you know, that is a structure that we have created and it further perpetuates that. Um, we embrace the idea of, you know, American cyclists, you know, burning out and not being able to handle the sport. And, you know, there's this I've, I've mentioned this before in other episodes, but this almost sort of like gleeful you know, um, vampirism of, of cycling journalism to sort of soak up these, you know, tragedies like, you know, um, local televised news melodrama. Uh, but there's no real quit critical questioning and saying that, well, this thing that we want everybody to think is fun, you know, um, but it's actually like has this dark underbelly of, you know, if you go too far, you know, you, you, you will be damaged. And that I think just sort of further is perpetuating that idea of like you have the minority who can and the majority who can't and you know i think all of this begs explanation why is it that we have um in our athletic fields in our athletic pursuits why do we have a minority such a small group of people who are the performers and why do we see the majority of people being non-performers and is that really the way it should be and that's where we enter right with the weight of all of that history History and historical memory, the memories that we have of history, which is more powerful, frankly, than and sometimes the actual history, because we act out in accordance um, with what our understanding of the way things are is more so um, than what the actual functionality of things might truly be, which is why using history to really try to get to a better understanding is so powerful, because it can really shift behavior in a way that I think we don't always give it credit for as a culture. Um, but history and, and the memory of history has, has left us with this core expectation of succeeders and failures. And I think by the time of Henry Ford, you're seeing this kind of essential, um, essentialist view of, you know, individuals in society. And the goal of these sorts of like environments is it's, it's a sorting process right? We get sorted out um, from, and we try to empower individuals um, by bringing out the succeeder within 
And then your worth as a consequence is whether or not you look like a succeeder. Can you demonstrate that you have succeeder potential? And then how far does your inner succeeder get you in that sort of scale or spectrum of success attainment? And to explain this, we have come up with kind of a holy trinity of avoiding uh, questioning the core interventions um, towards performance. You know, it's this idea of like, well, you sort of do these things and they're hard and a part of the uh, characteristic of success is the capacity to do things that are hard. Um, Number one, you know, this magical intervention of deus ex machina, you know, God in the machine, uh, in Greek theater, it was sort of seen as like a really cheap strategy to resolve a plot um, and, you know, where you need something to occur um, or, you know, sort of resolve something. You just have the God lowered in on the on the machine, uh, you know, the, theatrical machine brought into the stage and then they you know, use that omnipotent power to sort of advance the plot um, from wherever it is. And, you know, Clive Cussler did this a lot in his, uh, you know, pneumophiles novels um, where he would write himself into the book and he would sort of like the Santa Claus type energy where he would sort of, you know, show up out of nowhere as a character in his own book and, you know, contribute something that would allow the protagonists and, you know, the heroes to continue to advance on their journey. A second thing to think about is the idea of uh, the ghost in the machine. And this is a phrase that came up um, as a sort of mocking criticism, critique of this idea of, you know, uh, the mind-body dualism, which goes back to Descartes, the idea that the brain is just sort of riding, or not really the brain, right, but that the self um, is riding in the body. And that mind-body dualism allows us, though, to blame lack of toughness um, or engagement um, as like the reason uh, for our lack of outcome. Or maybe to state that more clearly, um, that the mind-body dualism allows us to blame our outcomes on a lack of toughness or engagement. And we see that uh, because we're biased and we've been conditioned to see it that way. And confirmation bias pushes us to uh, certain kinds of reasoning, right? And that that ghost in the machine phrase is sort of trying to make a mockery of the idea that, you know, the human body is is just a vessel into which consciousness somehow like enters. And then when the body expires, it just kind of exits. And the reality is that, you know, our consciousness is a a physical manifestation. Why are people resistant to that? Well, because we don't want to accept the fact that at some point we're all just going to wink out of existence. And, you know, who can blame us, right? Especially when we're you know, at a point in life where if we're feeling healthy and strong and we have things that we want to do and we can't imagine not wanting to do that anymore. I mean, you know, I have no desire to um, fail to achieve immortality. I mean, it would be nice to be able to kind of exist and sort of explore, you know, the endless complexity of the universe and the universe beyond ours indefinitely, but it doesn't appear to work that way. A third phenomena is outliers. And this interest in outliers and how we regard them um, sort of can be grounded in 
the idea that top performers are doing atypical things that the rest of us simply won't do. And then by extension, presumably it's because we can't do, right? You know, Henry Ford, you know, you got to take off into the wind, right? That it's like actually the people who are able to achieve lift do so because they go into that intensive um, space and that, that they, that's where that success comes from. But it's easy if you're Henry Ford to paint a narrative, a narrative of heroism. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, right, has a book, um, you know, Outliers, right, where, you know, kind of talks about that idea of, well, who are these individuals, right? What makes them unique? 10,000 hour rule, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we aren't comparing masters to apprentices. And, you know, even if we do, um, we create the outliers uh, in our society because we don't um, make passion um, or the other sort of niche fuels um, for the success really like readily available. We don't create create or sustain a kind of psychological space that allows people to get to that, right? And I think I look at um, cycling in the United States, and I think it's insane how terrible uh, it is compared to the international level. And I think even saying that, you know, might be offensive to people. And my goal on the pod is never to be offensive um, per se, but just to try to like, you know, shake the tree, you know, in the best possible way. And, you know, like, why do we find that offensive? You know, it's not an insult to say that, you know, we can probably be, you know, as individuals or as a collective uh, athletic subculture, we could probably be a lot better, a lot more proficient than we are. But people take offense to that because they want, I think there's some sort of sense of like, well, I am doing awesome, right? You know, I'm a succeeder. And then if the implication is no, um, you're actually well below what success should be. Well, now you're taking away that status of being a succeeder and you're taking people out of that special class and relegating, relegating them to that secondary class. There's a book uh, called The Pursuit of Loneliness. Um, and, you know, which talks about a lot of different dynamics of American society. But one of the things that comes up in there is this thing called the toilet assumption. Um, and it's kind of this articulation of how out of sight, out of mind behavior is kind of willfully perpetuated in American culture and American society. And like that's a really like early developmental stage for for babies or, you know, really, really, really young children. Right. Where like if you. You know, they're constantly, if you show your face and then you cover it and then you reveal it, you know, like in games, you know, peekaboo or whatever, it's like shocking and surprising, right? Because they, they can't see it. They literally don't know what's there. And, you know, the toilet assumption takes that and the author suggests that, you know, there seems to be this behavior of like, you know, if we just ignore things, they'll just go away. And I think we see that being, you know, very much true. And, you know, what I say in uh, the classroom a lot is, you know, number one, um, we can't know if something is worth knowing until we know it, because we don't know its value until we understand it. We can't determine the value of something without first, you know, understanding the nature of that thing in the first place. And I also like to say um, that the problem with reality is it's going to happen whether or not you choose to acknowledge it. And I think we do see that kind of idea of like, well, we don't have to like accept certain things that we don't want to. And then if we want to have this, you know, 
hierarchical model, right, where we think that, you know, it's legitimate and, and just because everybody has the opportunity to work hard and that some people don't work hard and that personal responsibility narrative is there. And that's what a lot of us want to think. And I think a part of that is the people who are the succeeders, right, really want to glorify their success. And I think we make success um, so incredibly um, celebrated in our culture that the second any of us get there, we really want to like lock that down because, you know, it's like, finally, I can feel good about myself. Finally, I'm worthwhile. But what I'm suggesting is that a majority of people should be able to succeed. You know, the, the outliers concept, I think, is kind of effed because that shouldn't be the case. It should be that most people are able to do pretty well and that there might be some people who have a marginal advantage. But the idea that the majority of people can't do these things well, I think, is a product of the way in which we create a space that ensures that that's the outcome and that the kinds of methodologies that we say, well, these are the succeeder attributes or the succeeder methodologies essentially are functioning to create this like false um, representation of how this stuff should be distributed. And so I suggest that we need to look for, and what we're going to try to do in this uh, series of episodes is try to look for a different kind of specter or entity, if you will, that is, you know, being driven by um, or driven in the machine. And I believe that we can conceptually model what I think this looks like um, through using some sort of like experiment graphing. And by that, I mean that I'm going to try to also uh, talk about some different ways to think about some data and information and to say, okay, can we maybe use this to help see this stuff differently? And some of this is sort of an extension of conjecture, and some of it is going to be taking from actual like data in terms of like looking at um, race performances over time within a like competitive culture and population space. And the question then is, what is the variance and why is the variance thus? Like it's a result of the interventions that we apply. It's not a result of inherent characteristics of inequity and disparities of ability. Okay, we make it this way through our choices. And most interventions here, what we're saying, are top-down interventions, by which I mean that they focus on taking what works for the best performer um, and applying that downward to the lower-level performers. But that is a totally mistaken concept, because if you take something that works well for one and you apply it to all— it's very unlikely that that's going to be successful because you have like an N of one. You have sort of one uh, piece of evidence to suggest this intervention worked, and it's just with one subjective individual, what makes that even more shaky. But I you know, see individuals all the time who want to look at, well, what is the N of one doing? How can I incorporate that? I need to do that. I'm not doing that in that way. Um, you know, and like, number one, we're not recognizing like the narrative there, right? That the narrative that individual is putting out might be a product of the fact that they don't even understand how to tell their own story. 
And I think this happens all the time, that people are successful and then they create narratives about how they got to that success that actually have nothing to do with that. And it's very possible and realistic to be successful and have no understanding of how you were successful in the first place. But we use this top-down approach of saying, well, this is what worked in the one instance, so that's what should logically work in all of the instances because um, of the broader reasoning that's sort of extrapolated by the aforementioned like holy trinity, if you will, that we use to kind of support this kind of idea or concept or approach um, of this idea of like, well, it's just that unique individual and that that's that inherent underlying principle. So when that's your your worldview, whether you have explicitly articulated that understanding within your own thought process or not, as the case may be, it, it doesn't really matter because like we're just sort of soaking in that cultural hot tub, if you will, and it's going to inevitably impact and, and shape how we think unless we make a conscious effort to sort of try to think about this stuff differently, which is, of course, what we're trying to do right here. And if we look at it differently, all of a sudden, I think we can start to see that phantom um, that has been there all along, but that we have just like totally turned a blind eye to, um, like which is the fact that if we're going to oversimplify, uh, most of us would be better off not doing special workouts at all. And maybe all of us would be better off not doing special workouts at all. And, you know, in later episodes, um, maybe not necessarily in this series, but in the podcast in general, we'll talk about other things like adaptation and, and recovery and, and what do these kinds of things mean. And I think that our perspective on those is also something that can shift if we sort of first recognize this sort of specter or phantom. So what is the specter that we're looking for? Well, we're trying to find evidence that the majority of us who are dismissed as outsiders, right, or the outliers, outliers, the non-succeeders shouldn't be, okay, and that most of us are not a, you know, evolutionary, you know, fart, um, but that are actually perfectly capable of being way faster um, and way stronger and fitter and more capable than we might actually ever get to. Now, one thing we want to acknowledge is that one of the ways we get better at things is through practice in aggregate. And in aggregate, practicing a lot is what's effective in terms of trying to improve. So for those of us who you know, have jobs and other obligations or other interests that require a lot of time, yes, that's going to be a limiting factor, right? I mean, the reality is you can't make, um, you know, 30 minutes of practice a day, the equivalent value of two or three hours of practice a day. And I think that's common sense. It doesn't mean that you can't get better, right? But the rate of improvement will be slower. And the um, ultimate, you know, level of capacity that you're going to get to at something is going to be slower. And I think that's like a meaningful takeaway from looking at out you know, the outliers concept that, um, you know, in that 10,000 hour quote unquote rule, which is basically just really just saying that, oh yeah, when you practice stuff a lot, you know, and you do that frequently and you do that consistently, well, that seems to allow people to get better. Um, and, you know, I think that if you take that concept, you know, we start to recognize that, okay, we can't create systems or environments 
where we're going to make it difficult for people to practice frequently, right? Practicing a lot is the most important thing, okay? Not murdering ourselves. Um, and that what we see, like, for example, high school cross country, you know, I've had a conversation um, at one point with a, another coach who told me that, um, well, you know, why are your athletes running over 30 miles a week? You know, that's 10K training, which, I mean, first of all, the notion that um, any particular miles a week are somehow the equivalent of training for any particular event, I think is a pretty like constrained view, but also, okay, well, 30 miles a week um, of running, you know, is actually really quite small if you're trying to be um, somebody who's improving, right? Because that's really limiting your ability to practice. And yet we see that stuff, you know, that's like what, barely over four miles a day of running if you ran every day of the week. Like you can't really improve that much off of that amount of work because it's just not very much practice. But you can also find Jack Daniels on YouTube saying that, you know, 80 to 90% of what you'll ever be, you know, is, is going to be accomplished in the first 40 miles a week of of training, right? And so, again, though, I think that's based on, and I've said this in other episodes, but right, you know, where who are we looking at as the success population and how do those people get to that point, right? There's some cultural screening that, that goes on and that screening isn't necessarily good. So, you know, how do we model... Uh, development. And um, to do this, we want to think about the concept of stimulus. And, you know, can we quantify stimulus? I think that's definitely, you know, one of many holy grail concepts is to be able to kind of figure out exactly, you know, what are we dosing? Um, The idea of reaching sort of a a prescriptive model of training, and then that that opens a door um, for, you know, the algorithms of training and that your running watch can tell you what to do, can tell you how recovered you are, can tell you how fast you're going to run, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I think that the answer is basically no. Okay, we can't really do that. Is it hypothetically possible? Yeah, but I think that would require a significant, you know, series of advancements and our understanding of, you know, the science of physiology and, and psychology to be, a, and, and there's so many variables, right? I mean, the reality is there's a phenomena going on that is leading to that kind of epigenetic response, that expressed adaptive uh, change. That's valid, that's real, that's happening. And so if something is tangible, right, or is occurring in that way, right, it's happening in a physical sense, you should be able to see or find or source something from that. However, like the amount of data that you would have to be able to process in a specific quantifiable way is very much going to be limited. An even shorter answer to this is TSS or training stress score. And you can find training stress scores uh, on Training Peaks. Training Peaks uh, likes to use this if you're um, an endurance athlete, but you're not familiar with Training Peaks. It's particularly popular um, with cyclists and triathletes, and the idea of like, well, we can sort of evaluate all of our training by deriving, um, you know, data uh, calculations from you know power and what that power means as a percentage of FTP. And I think that. You know, we probably want to all, though, be on the same page, have like a basic understanding of this. 
So rather than misrepresent this, to just sort of read an excerpt from uh, Training Peaks article, um, training stress scores explained, um, applicable workout types, biking or rowing with power meter only, accuracy level, uh, power-based TSS compared to heart rate TSS um, is the most accurate method of calculating a training stress score and is the default method for bike workouts when there's enough data present to calculate. Requirements to calculate, power meter data file containing time series duration and power data, power threshold or FTP set in power zones. What is TSS? Training stress score is a composite number that takes into account the duration and intensity of a workout to arrive at a single estimate of the overall training load and the physiological stress created by that training session. It's conceptually modeled after the heart rate-based training impulse, T-R-I-M-P or TRIMP. Um, By definition, one hour spent at functional threshold power is equal to 100 points. So we see that this is really derived from a series of assumptions about what are meaningful training interventions and, and training strategies, and that then you're dividing, dividing, um, excuse me, designing a system that's going to divide us out as a population, because this is based, you know, on this idea that you know the succeeders are doing these certain kinds of things, and that then we. Um, you know, peons and plebeians need to emulate that to the extent that we're capable of, which of course will be not very much. Um, but the best that we can do is sort of try to, um, you know, access that. And so if we're going to take this concept, okay, I'm, I guess I'm sort of implying, so I should be more explicit. I, if we're going to take this concept, I don't think um, that this is really valid because it's based on, you know, the validity of FTP. And if you listen to some of the stuff that we've said in other episodes, um, like the light bulb burst episodes, like the FTP isn't like the lactate threshold. It's not really identifying any sort of like critical point or change of significance. It's doing something else altogether. And it's an example of kind of this industrialized model of production of success, where it's like you go in, this is the system that has been developed and, and you do and you do that. Um, and like, I don't use training peaks. And I don't think that there's any value per se to training peaks over any other system, because training peaks is just going to sort of box us into a certain process. Because, you know, if you can grasp what I'm, I'm saying here, um, which is more of an acknowledgement of that I might not be clear on this rather than your inability to follow what I'm saying. But essentially, like we have contrived or fabricated this concept of TSS from this, you know, contrived or fabricated significance of FTP, and we've tried to assign it value. And then we're saying, well, you know, this TSS thing means blank. And well, if you're gonna, it's basically just sort of driving us to be like, okay, well, the most productive thing I can do is accumulate, you know, TSS points. And, you know, the sort of highest yield of TSS points is going to be training that is organized around the FTP intensity. And the FTP intensity is extremely uh, high. It's way harder than lactate threshold. It's way higher than lactate threshold. And that 
I mean, in general, right, I suppose it's possible that your FTP and your lactate threshold could be one in some instances, depending on your fitness. But for, you know, people who are reasonably well conditioned, you know, you can, your your peak 60 minutes um, is going to be totally different from your lactate threshold intensity. And so then we're being pushed to train at this really physically demanding state. It's going to induce a lot of muscular fatigue. So it's going to feel hard and challenging. So then we're ultimately going to be pushed through the pursuit of this model to have an experience where the limiting factor of training is our ability to handle the intensity of the load. And then the people who are able to quote unquote handle that are going to be the people who are going to be successful. Right. And we've taken this top down model and then we're applying it out to other people. And, you know, we've talked about how, you know, adrenally selective responses and, and other things could be influential in terms of people's ability to be successful with this kind of stuff. So to look at this, I've generated um, some sort of, I'm going to call it FATA uh, for fake data. Um, and the goal here is to try to put together some numbers in such a way as to construct a visual that represents what I'm talking about. And to do this, I'm going to give... TSS and this kind of a model, the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to assume that it is um, valid. I don't actually think that it's that great, but you know, I think to test it, let's take it at, at what it's supposed to be. Um, and I do not want to, nor do I intend to say that, oh, this is literal, like, um, you know, data collected through a study truth. Um, I mean, you could do a study and maybe you would end up with data that looks very similar to this. Um, and it could be the case then. But I want to be clear that that's not what I'm doing here. I'm trying to use this to like better articulate and better demonstrate the idea that we're trying to explore and then like invite further questions and consideration. And I think some people might have the point of view that there's sort of nothing new under the sun and that, you know, there's nothing to sort of be proved here. And I hope that um, if that's the case, I hope you find this thought-provoking and then it helps you maybe think about this stuff in different ways. Um, and I think, though, it's probably incredibly naive to just sort of assume that we're at the peak of understanding. Um, you know, historically, that's pretty subjective and it's a pretty messed up bias. And people ob- always seem to sort of assume that the time when they're alive is sort of the, the peak of, of knowledge and the peak of technology. Um, And I suppose it's good to not be horribly depressed that, you know, people might, you know, unlock uh, an understanding of, you know, uh, cellular level physiology in the future that could allow people to live for 500 years and remain youthful. Um, You know, right, these things function according to mechanisms. And if you understand those mechanisms, you can engage them. And if you can engage them sufficiently, you can maybe redirect them. So it's good to feel, I think, comfortable and, and happy and satisfied and feel that you live in a great um, technologically and um, culturally rich time. But the reality is, you know, we're going to look extremely primitive in the future. Um, Well, it's not that in the future we will be primitive, but in the future people will look at us and we will be shockingly primitive uh, to their point of view. And, you know, we want to keep that in mind. And, you know, it helps us sort of stay clear of the hubris of assuming we know everything there is to know. Um, you know, so number one, uh, we aren't at the highest level of understanding, so we need to keep asking questions. That's the first thing that that means. Uh, and number two, society has always thought they knew what was going on, and we will be regarded as shockingly ignorant in the future. And, you know, the idea that we're at the limit and absolute 
absurdist science fiction, um, like unlocking the brain <laughs> is the only way forward, is just dumb. You know, we've worked on sports for an extremely short period of time. And in general, the idea about performance um, is also kind of new, right? Like people haven't really thought about performance, you know, as a significant question for a long time. It's a new question um, in that historical scale of ideologies and philosophies. And, you know, we've kind of demonstrated a lot of how sport is trapped um, because of the way in which we perceive ourselves to sort of have reached the kind of like ultimate form of existence and sort of you know, this is the optimal, the best possible state or organization of society. And, you know, these are the distributive hierarchy of ability and achievement, etc. So just because we're in the time that we label as modern doesn't mean that our sports and athletic spaces are, are modern or fixed any more than society is as a whole. And, you know, because modern would ultimately, I think, maybe mean to say that, like, you know, it doesn't need to and, and it, what it, furthermore, it can't change because it's reached that point of being modern. Three, uh, we can't know what uh, we have future knowledge about, um, and we just, we can't. We can hypothesize, and sometimes the pursuit of those things can cause things to play out, and this podcast isn't supposed to be futurist um, exercise uh, strategies, although it might be an interesting episode, um, but that would be like a one-off. We just know in a very general sense that things could be wrong, and that's why I like these graphs. It's a way to ask these questions and to sort of think. And if we start asking questions and thinking, that's the kind of stuff that leads to paradigm shifting possibilities. And I would also say that um, I don't worship performance as this capitalist, you know, ambition, you know, to have the best GDP per capita. And that's, you know, the kind of thing that matters, you know, whose society is the most achieving, whatever. But I think we do care about performance in the sense that, we care about how to get from A to B because that's a part of how we can feel good as people. And I think that feeling good and performance are actually a symbiotic relationship. One leads to the other, leads to the other, etc. So let's start with some data on standard deviation of performance. And to do this, um, I asked the question, well, what would we see if we compare um, some high school cross-country meets? So I looked at um, for a state um, of New Hampshire, I looked at the um, state championship results for a period of 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. So the last five years, and I looked at um, the average placing in the field um, of the number one runner, number two, number three, four, um, all the way through the seventh um, finisher for the team. And what I wanted to try to see is, like, is there sort of a consistent level, right? Is this like really function like a fishbowl where things don't really change, but there's basically like a consistent level of performance where like on average um, is the number one runner when you average out for all of the teams are they usually finishing at the same point and is that true across the board and um, what we found and I'm gonna these are going to be posted on um, our Instagram at black cats run if they're not already but what I found is that like there really isn't much deviation 
okay, from year to year to year, that on average, the number one runner is very consistent. So for uh, the girls' results in that period, um, the average uh, result for for the teams was for their first runner averaged around 19th place. And the standard deviation um, from year to year was of 3.8. And for boys, the number one runner was 25 and the standard deviation is 3.3. And, you know, so what does this mean? Well, I think that it means if the sport was really super competitive, um, there should be much greater variance because if everybody is really similar and close in ability, then, you know, there should be much more inconsistency in what these results would look like. It would vary much more widely and the standard deviations would be the same. Um, And you might also wonder, well, what is the point or the value of looking at this stuff? I think what's surprising um, or maybe not so surprising, depending on what your personal hypothesis about might be, is that there's just very little change. Um, in the two variables here are kind of like participation level, um, which I didn't try to control or adjust for, although you certainly could. And a uh, second variable to consider is that there's an outlier um, in standard deviation in 2022 for boys. So if you decided to ignore these, I think you could see even, start to see even more of that similarity. But overall, I think when we look at this data table, I think it demonstrates the concept of norm level of performance is largely constant. And if you extend that to any other race, you can be confused by the outliers. But when you look at the aggregate, you see similarity across the male and female populations. Additionally, you see standard deviations that are very similar, but maybe slightly is expanding as you regress from top runners to slower runners. You know, should this be true though? Is this like the natural order of things? Is this the correct pattern? Well, I would say no. I think this sort of represents what I would talk to the cross country team in the period where I coached as the curve. Um, and you should be able to, first of all, beat the curve by having uh, athletes get faster. But second of all, I think that despite what the data represents, there isn't a natural uh, distribution of, you know, for all schools, the first runner will probably on average be a top, you know, 20 finisher for girls. And on average, you know, you can expect your first runner to be in the top 25 um, for boys. And that, you know, as you go down the scale, there might be more, you know, variance. Um, And that then when you look at, you know, you know, overall from year to year, there's also very little change. And so, is that really reflective of a competitive environment? And I would say, no, I think it's reflective of a top-down model of training that we're taking training that works for the you know, high performer and then we're applying it to other individuals. And so those other individuals are distributing down the ladder. And you know what we saw with our team uh, is we had a year where all of our runners were inside of the top um you know, 14 individual placings, I think it was. And when you look at, you know, the data, the average number one runner place for boys, um, you know, is 25 um, with a standard deviation of 3.3. Okay, so then to take everybody on your team and have them all finish well inside of that average top one place to be in the top 14, well, what does that mean? I think that that means that 
okay, this idea that, you know, the first runner is going to be about this good and your second kid on your team is going to be about here. The third kid's going to be about here. And, you know, you may or may not have these first three runners in the top 50. Um, but when you, by the time you get down to fourth, you're certainly not going to have all of those runners in the top 50. And that is what the data seems to suggest is true. But the data is a product of how we're choosing to train. And, you know, that's where when we look at this stuff, um, I think we want to note that, you know, the whole population um, isn't getting quicker. And I think that matters a lot because it's demonstrating that we aren't really like getting better at training. But I also think the other thing, too, is, you know, that God in the machine level explanation is to be like, oh, well, well, that's because that's how good runners from New Hampshire are. And the consistency and the stability in the data and sort of like where these runners tend tend to rank or, or match up relative to each other. And the fact that there's no variance, I think, is, you know, you is just sort of to me, that's like a plot problem, right? Or it's like a plot hole. Well, why in something that's competitive would things work out just kind of the same every single year? That sort of seems to not be very competitive. But people are saying, well, that's because we're at the peak level of competitiveness. But I, I just really don't think that's true. Um, and if we look at the standard deviation of teams across these uh, periods, um, and I have you know graph, a couple graphs here for this showing, um, you know, male and female. Um, I think this data tables here are reflective of things like training, engagement, um, and then like expressed capacity to actually perform at the state championship meet. And a question I ask of this is like, why do athletes from the same source population of schools have such uh, huge variance um, over the years? Um, and I think it has to be the training and not the talent. Now, it also might be confusing here because we said, well, you just got done saying that there's very little change, but now you're saying that there's a lot of change. Well, what we're looking at um, in these graphs is we're looking at, um, you know, what's the standard deviation of the top seven? So like how many placings apart are the top seven runners on each team? And, you know, obviously there's going to be variation. But what's interesting is to consider that when we look at the average placements, that we don't see a lot of fluctuation and that the variation um, from year to year, um, right, is is pretty small, frankly, uh, in terms of what that looks like. So you're kind of seeing that this like aggregate level of competitiveness overall sort of seems to say kind of the same. But then... When we're looking at this from the perspective, how close together do the athletes perform in terms of placement um, on individual teams, you see something different. And that's what this bar graph, again, is representing. And, you know, when you combine the male and female athletes' results together, you do have kind of something that starts to resemble a little bit more of a bell curve. But when you separate them out, um, you see some difference and I think what you tend to see um, with the male athletes is there's sort of a bump around 15 to 20 placings, and then there's another one around like 19 to 34, 35. Um, but whereas for the female athletes, it sort of seems to be more concentrated around like the 25 to 33 range. And it should, right, all else being equal, it should be the same. And I think 
the fact that there's this difference when we look at the data from this perspective is suggestive of the extent to which we are creating um, constructed distributive um, performance, not a natural distribution of performance. And it's reflective of training, engagement, express capacity to run in the state meet, as we've already said. And I think you could look at this and think, to ask the question, if you will, why do athletes from the same source population of schools have such huge variance in standard deviation um, within teams or compared team to team? But overall, there's very little variation in terms of the aggregate um, standing of a number one, number two, number three, number four runner, because you would expect there to B, I think from a you know competitive standpoint, you would think there should be more variation from that um, data set, and there isn't. And I think what that is indicative then is that it's the training and it's not the talent. And the deus ex machina blaming it on the talent factor, you know, they're talented or they're not talented and suggesting that the distribution represents that. I think this is a terrible explanation because it would also then suggest that um, male athletes are more talented than female athletes because male teams are more likely to have um, like smaller, um, you know, variations in the dis- in the sort of like placings between athletes. So basically, you're more likely to have a high performing group of male athletes, and you're less likely to have a high performing group of female athletes. And I don't think that that's true at all. I think that um, male and female athletes should be exhibiting pretty much the same level of performance variation. I also think that within a space, if people accept a norm, and that's what I think is reflected in this data, you see stagnation. Because the standard deviation average in team performance is much bigger um, compared to um those like within individual placings things. And I think the larger standard deviation means um, it's more equitably competitive and that bumps would mean variance in method and not talents. And, the, and, and that if there was no humps, if like it was just like totally even, right, and you had a proportional number of teams um, with gaps between runners all up and down, I think that that would suggest is actually like a perfectly competitive situation. Um, And that when we're seeing these variations and fluctuations, that's a reflection of the training strategies that we're assigning. And I think, for example, with female athletes, there's a inherent bias to assume that female athletes can't engage in training in the same way that male athletes are able to. And so we see here in this data how that represents that. And the reason why the top runners and the uh, female results um, are exhibiting a different, um, all right, like, so let's use the numbers, right, to be less confusing. For girls in this time period that we studied, um, the average number one runner is 19th. Um, For boys, the average number one runner is 25th. And when you go down, you know, the list, um, you see that that's always um, going to be... um, the case that there's this slight difference. And I think that that's reflective of the fact that um, 
you know, there's a smaller number of girls teams that are being given effective training, and there's a slightly larger number of boys teams being given more effective training. And, you know, we also want to acknowledge that we can't reach too many conclusions from the data. It would be more meaningful to look at, like, all of the states with cross-country and to look at it over, like, multiple five-year blocks and try to say, okay, are there trends that are occurring on this scale? But if you compare these results to, say, maybe, like, a random number generator, right, how different would it be? And I think if in a, like, perfectly competitive situation, it should look very similar to a random number generator. And there's clearly patterns here. And I think the idea that there's patterns, we sometimes might take that to confirm that, right, well, you know, it's only a minority of people who can be successful and this bias that, well, women can be good athletes, but they're just less likely to be as good because women aren't as athletic. I don't believe that to be the case. And I'm pretty sure that that is objectively also not the case. But I also think that's a cultural belief that is very prevalent, and we extend that belief into our ideology of what um, should or should not be possible. So essentially, we can say that the training culture and systems in place for the athletic experiences are explaining why do some teams have higher standard deviation between their um placings of individuals and why others have lower standard deviation. You know, my, um, the best cross country team that I was able to coach had a standard deviation of, of close to five, um, you know, and that we had everybody finishing in the, in the top 15. So overall, I think we're biased through exposure to certain like perspectives and ideas of what performance is and ideas about how talent should be distributed um, to expect certain distributions to play out in practice. Uh, you know, and that's where, again, anecdotally, you know, you would say the female athletes have more top performers and more lower-level performers, whereas male athletes are more likely to be competitive and, and finish closer together, and there's more sort of interchangeability, if you will, in the upper one-third of the field, and I think that the data then sort of reflects this. And I think that when we recognize that there's an impact of implicit sexism and that fewer female athletes are engaged with respect or dignity um, that serious athletes should be given. Um, and, and because of that, there's a small group of female athletes who have access to that environment, and that gives them a huge competitive advantage. And, you know, this then is also suggesting that male athletes are more likely to receive better training. However, when we aggregate this together, we also see that there are a few teams that are way better than the majority. And at a public school level, you really shouldn't see that be the case. And a state like New Hampshire has one of the lowest levels of um, socioeconomic inequality of all of the states in the country. And, you know, you would, again, expect that, you know, to see, you know, more competitive equitability, but we see a huge variation. And... Um, the consequence of this goes back to that industrialized process and that way of thinking of like few people are going to be achieving and the minority of people are going to struggle to achieve or be underachieving. And because we have that prophecy there, right, we then fulfill that. And when we see data that reflects that distribution, instead of saying this is something that we should change, 
it's what we expect to see. So there's really no incentive to question that and and try to create a different process or intervention. Um, and standard results um, in the aggregate, right? But variation in performance and experience within the machine. Um, the top seven average placing shows very little change, but it shows significant variation within the team. If it's more competitive, it should be more random. The one through seven runners shouldn't, on average, be falling in the same place. It looks like the same runners or the same individual athletes every year. It's what you would think based on those kinds of results that, oh, these are just these people and it's the same people and this is just how they sort out. So that's why it falls like that. And there's going to be these small variations, but it's not. It's different athletes every year. So you shouldn't have that repeated consistency in the overall data in those first two tables. You know, the alternative is that there's something else going on. In theory, even with a race of 100 people, you know, the majority of those athletes, you know, 90% of them should have a fair chance of finishing in the top 30 of the race. Now, they're not all going to do that, but it should be intensely competitive, especially over a distance as short as 5,000 meters. And the thing that's not going on is that the models of training are um, based on the outlier bias. And there's this idea that, well, some people can't, maybe most people can't absorb training because they're rocks and not sponges. And, you know, no, um, I think the popular notion is that these athletes, they can't train hard, right? They can't do the intensity and the frequency of intensity necessary uh, to be good, right? You know, they're um, rocks and not sponges. But maybe the problem isn't that they aren't responsive, right? It's not that you have a few sponges and most athletes are rocks and then, you know, you're just sort of screwed as a coach and there's nothing you can really do. You can't really impact. You're just going to bring out uh, the successful and everybody else is going to fall by the wayside. And that, you know, then some teams are getting lucky and they're getting the good athletes, which again, though, we're saying this is public high schools um, in the state of New Hampshire. I think that that idea is a little bit overblown in that kind of an environment, maybe significantly overblown. And if we take that perspective of, well, they aren't responding to the training, um, it could be due to training that is too much rather than an inability to do the training. And those are really big uh, distinctions. Uh, so consider like this mitochondrial uh, perspective within this. Some people just can't produce them, or if they don't, um, you know, they just lose them. So then like what percentage of the population can actually produce the mitochondria, like 10%, 1% of the population? Because that's sort of like the implication of this is that very few people can exhibit the physiology, physiological adaptation of producing more mitochondria. And that's absurd. You know, it would be a very, very tiny percentage of the population that couldn't do that because that'd be a huge like health issue if you can't do that. So the issue then must be that actually, right, these teams aren't creating the context or the environment or the sort of like epigenetic space, if you will, that's going to allow these kinds of adaptations to occur. Because to adapt and survive, evolutionarily speaking, um, the majority of people need to be able to respond at a very high level to environmental stress. So I think, yes, these athletes can respond to stress. The majority of them can. And I think there's this core idea that um, we have to apply loads with this like 
you know, absolute minimum frequency or else people can't get better. And I think that's likely untrue when you're looking at that from a hit perspective that, you know, if you try to apply it beyond what the athlete can tolerate, then they're not going to get better. And so that if we want to say the frequency is important, which it is, because that's how you're creating that adaptive pressure, what we really want to be doing is we want to be being able to say, okay, well, what's the stress that people can handle and, and do frequency? So the frequency is, should be more important than the intensity. And, you know, it's certainly a source of anxiety for a lot of athletes, the question of am I doing enough, am I training hard enough? But the competitive battle should be decided by um, the fact that, you know, people can load and adapt more frequently, um, leading to greater units, uh, greater gains per unit of training, shall we say. And then, you know, this leads us to believe um, that training in certain methods is more effective. And then we see, because we see that exhibited on um, certain athletes and then we like push that onto the others and, and the prevalence of injury and burnout and these big variations in individual placing are evidence of the training not working. And, um, you know, my last two years of coaching, my team had standard deviation of 5.6 and then 9.1. Um, and I think the year after I left, the benefits were still present um, and of the athletes, you know, I know from speaking to athletes about, you know, you know, what they, they had done, you know, after the fact, I mean, they having approached me and shared this with me, um, you know, we're doing very similar things and applying those same concepts that we had put in place as a team. And, you know, that year after even they had a standard deviation of 6.6. We also had no injuries and we had this feel good focus clearly in mind with everything that we were doing. So it was different, right? So we were acknowledging that the competitive battle is like, can you apply, you know, adaptive pressure? But it's not trying to say, can you find the athletes or can you sort of, through happenstance, have the athletes who can respond to the correct model of frequency and intensity of loading and recovery. But instead we're saying, let's just create the best um, environment in which we can all see that we're moving and because that's what's important is to move the needle and as long as you're moving the needle that's that's good training and then you can see and experiment with and say well how much can I move the needle how quickly can I do that but still stay in that feel good space and then that's where you can really start to gain competitive advantage and it's also worth noting that when we look at this example data in this kind of like you know impromptu case study if you will that is this not a system or an environment where people are maxing out their mitochondrial potential and they've just like done all of that to the hilt and then they needed to layer on or add in this additional component so if we say like what is the label cost or define role cost of performance i think that our explanations are blocking us from looking further um, and that that is the cost of labeling things in these particular ways. And it's where that God from a machine is used to hand us these generic answers. And it just the simplicity of it, right, means that we don't have to ask questions or try to figure something out. And, you know, there's a huge list of this stuff, some of which might include talent, grit, hard work, dedication, desire, tenacity, 
Um, and then, you know, on the other scale, you might say people being sick, injury, you know, lucky or unlucky, you know, and, and you can continue to sort of brainstorm these kinds of terms. Um, but I think what we really want to take the perspective is to say that there's like teams that are underperforming. There are athletes that are underperforming. There's sort of a baseline. Um, and then there's like a level of specificity and specificity is where like, okay, you're doing things to really get yourself above baseline. You're doing something more specific or more precise. And then I think you have beyond that, the level of innovation. And I think this is the spectrum where we can fall as individuals, where we can fall um, with teams, you know, and if I'm consulting uh, with an individual or if I'm consulting with a group of athletes, right, the question is, how can we fall as close towards that innovation space as we possibly can? And I think that most people are sort of settle at trying to reach the point of specificity, but easily end up um, underperforming, um, you know, as coaches, right? That coaches are targeting, you know, this specificity thing, but they end up producing underperformance. And they don't recognize that, right? Because we sort of have this confirmation bias of like, well, that is what this should look like. And reverse engineering training from like the one athlete that you had who was awesome, um, is not a good solution. You know, at best, it leaves you chasing a facsimile of others' results. And the standard deviation model, I think, that we've looked at here would suggest that it's not really possible to have more than, you know, X-level competitors, and that we're looking at this inherent distribution of talent, you know, i.e. the training interventions are already as effective as possible. That's not the issue. And, you know, the workout must be X intensity with Y frequency. And the issue is whether the athletes, A, respond physiologically in the correct way, um, and then that level of response is talent, or B, and we're sort of simplifying back down from that list we just um, went through a moment ago, uh, but B, grit. Uh, despite an inability to respond to training like the talented athlete, um, an individual uses a capacity to endure like unspeakable pain to achieve quality results. And that the high performer then has some ratio of grit to talent. And people who don't um, demonstrate uh, grace, dominance, or explosive capacity are considered to be, um, you know, less talented and more gritty. And people who are graceful, you know, seem to dominate without a lot of effort or practice, you know, have really good explosive acceleration, are considered to be more talented than gritty. And right, this idea that it works in ratio. Uh, so like a tiny climber and a big person, um, you know, who climbs well um, are examples of this, right? So they're both really gritty, right? The really tiny, scrawny person who can climb well, um, or a big person who climbs better than you would expect based on your stereotypes are both gritty. But then in between, this sort of lean, attractive, um, but sort of basically uh, socially constructed all-around Goldilocks athlete body is going to be seen as the talent. Um, even if they're just really ultimately performing in between that climber, and they're really not doing much better than the bigger athlete who climbs really well. And socially, there's a huge pressure and a reward 
to being able to be seen as being talented. Um, you know, examples of this social behavior occurs pretty early on. Like people lie about studying for tests or about the amount of time they put into a project or an assessment uh, in high school, for example, because of the the benefit of making it seem like their success is effortless. And it's this kind of like make it look easy culture. And you don't want to be a tryhard because a tryhard that's gritty and being gritty is the opposite of talent. And talent is what is attractive and appealing. Um, but talent should be, if we're going to even pretend that that's a worthwhile characteristic to think about, talent should be physically real and it shouldn't just be a form of subjective praise. It's also not healthy to present a subjective characteristic like that as a fixed one because there's really negative consequences to being told you're talented. Um, if you think about it in the context of what happens when you get out of that goldfish bowl, that space in which you appear to be talented because it's a relativistic characteristic. And, you know, we come back to that random number generator idea, right? How do we know if our intervention was effective as opposed to any other alternative? How would we make that assessment? Well, can we create a statement result um, from a random number generator and compare that to the results of your team? You know, if you're really not that much different from the random number generating you know, deviation. So if you like random generated placings um, for seven athletes, and then you looked at your athletes um, over a period of seasons, and if the standard deviation of the random number generator seven and the standard deviation of your athletes are sort of like similar, then, you know, you're probably at best at baseline and, you know, or trending towards underperforming. You're not actually, you know, breaking through or innovating for the athlete. Or if you're training yourself, Right, it's a little harder to see that because you only have that n of one. Um, but when you're up looking at a kind of concept of training and you're applying it to a group of people, if you're training people well, you should see them all performing at a pretty similar level. Because the idea should be that, well, as you know, a coach, you should be able to bring people to a level of performance. And I know this is antithetical to the way a lot of us think about this, because for a lot of us, the concept is well. You know, that's not how this works. There's going to be that hierarchy of distribution. You're going to have the elite and then the drop off and then the further drop off. But I, I just don't think that's true. Yeah, you're going to have people are going to outperform each other, but the differences should be a lot smaller than we like to think. And so then that comes to what's your concept of what's possible. And I don't think that the mind transcends into some higher plane of existence with athletic feats or anything like that. I don't think that's what we mean by what's possible. But I think we instead want to orient that question of what's possible towards having some sort of standard concept of performance and what that means. So the goal of training is, I think, to see if we can come up with a better way to train. That means doing different things than in the past and different things than what we see other people doing. It also means um, that we can apply the same things at certain times, but that should be based on the fact that there's like actual good evidence showing that people are responding or improving to that. The evidence isn't that, well, this one person this one time did this and, you know, that worked well. So then we just like blindly continue to utilize it, right? And we're asking ourselves always the question, what is our understanding of training and its impact on performance, right? And we want to make sure that the connection between those is as close or as clear as possible. And, you know, why did we have such a, you know, this sort of within this time sample, um, the best standard deviation from, um, 
you know, our cross country team. Um, you know, or you could say, why do other teams demonstrate that? Is it because they had more talented people at that time? And I think basically what I found is that people either wanted to say that, you know, the athletes were really talented um, or, um, and I remember people telling me this at the time that, you know, I, you know, I was overtraining the athletes, you know, and it was just like, despite that they're, you know, they're, they're dominating everybody but they're being overtrained, right? And it's just their grittiness is allowing them to overcome that. And I think both of those become strategies to not have to accept the possibility that, you know what, our concept of this like natural order of things where few succeed and most are scrubs is maybe just a construct of the methodologies that we permit ourselves to use. And you know, I mean, that then extended into the idea that, right, you know, it was unfair that we like somehow trained too much or too well. And that made the performances of the athletes illegitimate, which is weird because the whole point I thought was to perform um, well and try to figure out how to train the best way possible to create those results. And I think that there's um, clearly um, this subjective sense of people um, not achieving what they're capable of. And I think a lot of us as athletes can feel that we're not doing what we probably really can do. And it's kind of at war with this like external narrative, which is saying, nope, this is it. This is all you're capable of. You just need to accept that. And I think for many of us, maybe even most of us, we can tell the difference between a race done well, where we clearly got the most out of ourselves versus a race done poorly where we underperformed, or we can even sometimes get a sense of, well, I did this, but I really feel that there's more in there. And maybe I don't have the fitness for that right now, but I feel like I can reach to that state. But we don't know how to go from where we are to there because the interventions that are being presented to us are interventions that essentially function to maintain that distributive hierarchy of, you know, the 1% are good and the 99% just kind of suck. And, you know, in my experience, the overwhelming majority of races I did, um, you know, as a high school athlete and a college athlete, I think were basically garbage. Um, and then there's this return when you're in that state to the silence effect, silencing effect, because it's like, I'm not allowed to talk about that experience because I suck, right? And if you suck and you're not good enough, your narrative and your voice and your experience around training isn't valid, right? You aren't allowed to have a voice. And, you know, it's the fact that you suck proves then that whatever you might have to say is invalid. Um, and like, as if like my lack of individual performance achievements is somehow indicative of a lack of competence. So the silencing effect is now, additionally, not only do very few people perform, but it's also those same very few people who are allowed to talk about this stuff, right? It's just like the Henry Fords, you know, allowed to say, well, you know, this idea of, well, how should you train? Well, you can train any way you want as long as it's hit, right? You can, any color they want, as long as it's black. I think the accumulation of bad training whether from the system or from not getting the right guidance or direction, as is most often the case, um, the pressure to run faster than you can in order to be accepted and praised within the social space of the team just makes that worse. You know, and in hindsight, I know that I was running outside of myself because I wanted the results and I wanted to do what felt right um, within that social space, but I could also tell it wasn't working and I could really feel that. And 
when I race now, I can oftentimes tell that I'm not like in the, you know, best possible shape. And I know that there's way more fitness that I could reach out and potentially get to. But at the same time, I also feel way stronger and better and more competent. Um, and in some cases, I've basically run um, races that really aren't much that different than the performances I could do when I weighed 145 pounds and I was, you know, in the NCAA environment, this thing that's supposed to equate to high performance. Um, but, you know, how do we represent those voices and those experiences when we have this personal responsibility culture um, where it's like, well, I can't, you know, and I think in this case, I am representative of a lot of different people who, you know, had experiences, but because like they didn't do well enough, right, you know, our experiences aren't legitimate for us to talk about. And, you know, I'm trying to shift that concept of, you know, who has permission to speak, and that permission to speak should be based on whether or not you have something to say that you want to add to um, the discussion, not in terms of whether you're a person who has like a certain threshold of um, ability or capacity. And I think like all that we really know about those quote unquote succeeders is that they were better than the rest. And it's not a relationship of status that should be perceived to have any particular status or meaning to it. But when we see it that way, that's the point at which we introduce the bias. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Black Cats Run. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on our Instagram at Black Cats Run. Please consider taking a moment to share with other people that you think would be interested in the kinds of questions that we explore here on the pod. If you have an interest in hearing more about how you could apply this to your own training, uh, send us a message via Instagram. We're always happy um, to make time to consult with people about the questions or problems or challenges that you're having with your training. In the next episode in this series, we're going to try to explore a model where we specifically take TSS, think about different athletes, think about the idea of different responses based on this supposedly natural talent distribution, and see what that would look like in practice. And what conclusions can we reach from that? Can we get closer to finding the ghost? We'll catch you next time.